0: This is the holiday season, or shall we say the holy season, where Jews celebrate Hanukkah and Christians
1: celebrate Christmas. So what are these two holidays anyway, and what role do they play in these respective traditions? And can we still find meaning in these celebrations, even in the midst of the massive commercialism of this season? Xmas, Greeks, the temple, and the number of candles on your windowsill, this week on A Rabbi and Pastor Walked In. We are going to talk about Hanukkah and Christmas today, uh, because this year, the Hebrew calendar and the um, general Western calendar are aligned for the month of Kislev, which is the 25th of Kislev is Hanukkah, and the 25th of December is Christmas, and this year, each day of December is the same day of Kislev.
2: Which doesn't happen every year because the no. months are different yep. lengths between the Hebrew and the Western calendar. So. Right.
1: And uh, Hanukkah can be as early as the day before Thanksgiving as it was last year or as late as a couple of days after uh, somewhere between Christmas and New Year's. I forget the exact date.
2: So somewhere within a two-and-a-half-month period. One-and-a-half. One-and-a-half-month yeah. period. Yeah. And then wasn't it last year or the year before that Hanukkah was on the same day as Thanksgiving? That's right. It, was a, right. it, it, it was started
1: a d- the night before Thanksgiving. Right. So. The, and so, as a matter of fact, uh, I still have a turkey menorah. A saying. menorah means a lamp. Right. And specifically, Hanukkiah is a lamp, a, a candelabrum for hanukkah and i have one made it in the shape of a turkey because last year we all called it thanksgivica <laughs> it was kind of silly at least in america we did where we celebrate thanksgiving
2: because <laughs> you can always count on jews for getting good jokes in around every holiday it's we good. do
1: have a weird sense of humor and, and i have one of the weirder ones <laughs>
2: <laughs> one of my favorite things
1: Hanukkah. Uh, most of the people here, although we're listening to us, have an idea of what Christmas is all about. but We're going to get into that in, in a second. But Hanukkah commemorates and celebrates the independence of the Judeans uh, who were fighting against both the Greek forces of the Antioch the Seleucid or Seleucid Empire ruled by Antiochus or Antiochus. Some people say, and um, the uh, there were not only that they had their armies, but it was also uh, an internal civil war between Jews who had become Greek right. and uh, and Jews who were trying to remain faithful to Judaism, and also Jews who were caught in the middle who did a little both. As a matter of fact, all of the Maccabee brothers, the five Maccabees, um, had Hebrew names as well as Greek names. And... Right. Uh, <laughs> And the first Maccabee dynast king uh, was Yohanan, which is John, Mm -hmm. Horkonos, which is Greek. (laughs) So um, it had nothing to do with the word John. But um, that battle is still going on between uh, Judaism and the Western world in terms of how much can you be Jewish and how much can you be Greek. And the the fact of the matter is that you can be both. Hmm. And... uh, Those of us who live in the Western world and embrace science and math and natural philosophy of various kinds uh, owe that to the Greeks. And so we would, but but Danielle and I were talking.
2: How to to discover or how to speak about it, right? Those things were also known in ancient Israelite culture, but not in the same linear progression that we embrace today when we talk about. Western learning or Hellenism.
1: Right. And uh, and so, as a matter of fact, most of us, whether you're religious, whether you're Jewish, Christian, Muslim, we spend most of our day thinking Western thoughts of math, science, and philosophy, right. uh, or just technology and how to get along in the world, than we do thinking about our religion. Even if we pray three times a day, mm-hmm. uh, or five times a day, mm-hmm. as a Muslim would, uh, might, uh, you still don't, Spend that much time thinking about these things, unless your job is to think about them and to read about them, and teach about them, study about them. And even though I'm a rabbi and I do all those things, right? I still spend a lot of the day just thinking normal, Western, typical thoughts.
2: We are this—it's how our brains have been framed yep. right, from birth. So, yep. um, and the reason why this conflict was happening, of course, in the land of Israel, in the Levant, in the time period of. Uh, the Maccabean Revolt and Independence Days, because Alexander the Great was very successful in the 300s BCE, and he had an incredibly successful military campaign that that per, um, sort of created the roadmap for Hellenism, for a Hellas Greek life uh, to spread and to go throughout the whole known world, really, at that time. And then after he dies... There is uh, His kingdom is divided amongst generals, and then we end up having the Seleucids in the north and the Ptolemies in the south, and they are not too benevolent in terms of their leadership over the Judeans. In particular, um, uh, Antiochus is how are we've been joking to be honest, do all the pronunciations for Hanukkah, or the at least the transliterations. It's
1: Hanukkah. You can spell it any way you <laughs> right. want to, whatever works. Right. I like to spell it in Spanish. Because J is a ha, huh, and if you do C-H, people say Chanuka, and if you don't do C-H and you put an H, then you just think it's a plain old H. Anyway, that's just too much fun, right. but we, we, as Jews, we grow up knowing that there are more ways to spell it than there are Jews in the world. So,
2: For, for Californians, we might liken it to growing up and having to learn that it's not pronounced Lajala. It's La Jolla, <laughs> right? <laughs> and if you're going to the grocery store and you're looking for jackama, you should probably pronounce it you Then should You should probably do that. You might, you might have better success. <laughs>
1: but anyway, a little bit about what Hanukkah is and, and how we get there. So I'm going to try. This is the uh, three-minute version. At least I'm going to try and keep it to three minutes. In, uh at, there were four generals of Alexander the Great that inherited the Middle East after he died, and two of them were Antiochus and Ptolemy. Ptolemy ruled Egypt, and Antiochus was up in Anatolia and Syria. And the Seleucid, Seleucus, which is the the general's name who founded the Antioch regime, uh, beat the Ptolemy general uh, at a battle, and uh, he took over what we would call the land of Israel. And the difference between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids was that the Ptolemies basically had a country on a river. And they didn't have to worry about controlling. It was a long country, long and thin, went on a river. But there were no natural, real boundaries
0: mm-hmm. to
1: the to the uh, area that the Seleucid Empire controlled. And so uh, the kings began to give certain cities, capital cities of people, a, a chance to become a police, P-O-L-I-S, which is Greek for city, like in metropolis. And... Uh, cosmopolitan right. stuff like that and so what do you get if you become a police the answer is you get to have a stock exchange you get to mint your own money you get to have a gymnasium right. and um and a center of power and economic advantage and there were a lot of people and a lot of peoples who thought wow this is a great idea so they and a
2: religious that. power i mean you'd have a house for one of the gods
1: right and you had to and in order to do this you had to swear allegiance somewhat, Mm -hmm. to the Greek gods. And so there were plenty of Judeans who wanted to do this because it would bring economic prosperity to their area. And so you had Jews who were traditionalists and Jews who were, let's go and become Greeks. And they began to argue. But at that time, actually, Jews began to take Greek names. As a matter of fact, the first rabbi mentioned as the beginning of the chain of tradition after... Uh, Moses gets it down to what's called the Men of the Great Assembly. The first rabbi mentioned has a Greek name. His name is Antigonos. Hmm. So, um, and this is in the, still in the BCE time. So it's
2: right. Well, and one of Jesus's disciples is named Philip. Right. But so, he's a good Jewish boy. Yep. And his name is Philip. Yep. But then we also have Johanan and others, right? But
1: people had their had two names, mm-hmm. and and we still have that happening uh, today.
2: Same with the with the Apostle Paul yep paulus shaul shaul right. is his hebrew name paulus is his greco-roman name
1: right so in any case uh this came to a head and a man named matithiao which is mattathias in greek transliteration which is the way most people know it uh, because actually there's no book of maccabees that survives in in hebrew there are four books of the maccabees and they survive in greek and they are in what's called the apocrypha which are books that Martin Luther kicked out of the Protestant Bible, but the Catholics still keep them, and the pseudepigrapho, which means falsely attributed writings, and they don't appear in anybody's Bible, but they're contemporary.
2: Well, and wasn't it also Catholics that, you know, Christians that were preserving the books of the Maccabees initially, right? They found them to be, even though didn't consider them in the canon, found them to be valuable historical documents.
1: Right, and because they survived in Greek and Latin, the hero Judah Maccabee, or Yehuda HaMaccabee in Hebrew, is known best as Judas Maccabeus, mm-hmm. which is what uh, Handel's oratorio is called Judas Maccabeus. In any case, the, Matichau was a Kohen, a priest, and he and his five sons, they were also Kohanim, priests. They began a revolution against the Greciified people of their own religion and, of course, against the Greek overseers and overlords and that war went on
2: and according to Maccabees, I mean, this wasn't just because we don't like these guys and we'd like to be in power, although I'm sure that there was some of that as well. It was quite an abusive rule and reign. Like, right. If you were a Jew who was trying to um, remain faithful to significant identifier, ethnic markers of Judaism, kosher keeping, circumcision, Sabbath keeping, et cetera, that was punishable by death in some cases, right? Right. So um, it wasn't just simply saying hey, you know, these Greeks aren't that much fun, or we don't want to do these things. I mean, there was a revolt to some fairly horrible uh, consequences that were being pressed upon Judeans who were trying to continue worship of the one true God and continue to follow that God um, for all of the things that they deeply cared about. So there were laws being passed, right, that they were, you couldn't um, avoid eating pork products anymore. There was trying to, you know, force people to eat pork. Or I even remember reading one story, is this also in Maccabees, of women that were being forced to wear their circumcised children's...
1: Around their neck, dead.
2: Dead bodies around their neck because they wanted to force them to to not circumcise their child anymore.
1: We have a story called Hannah and Her Seven Sons, and they all willingly accept martyrdom. This is in four Maccabees in the Pseudopigrapha, And they all give these long speeches in the style of Greek histories uh, <laughs> about why they do that. But um, so those things made it very difficult. And the reason that Antiochus made these rules was because he was getting pushback in the worst right. way right. possible from people who were against the concept of Jerusalem becoming a police, a major city. And, uh, and so this kind of... Uh, he had to clamp down, he thought, it was a good idea and turned out to be not a good idea. Um, the, the war went, actually one of the first um, changes of Jewish law is uh, attributed to the Maccabees. They were fighting back, but they wouldn't fight on the Sabbath. Mm. And so uh, they were, the Greeks would say, well, let's wait until Saturday. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and that was not a, a good thing for Jews. And so they had to figure out, how do we fight? And they came up with a, a new Jewish practice, which was you're allowed to fight on the Sabbath if you're attacked, mm-hmm. which they wouldn't even do then, mm-hmm. and then they changed that. So that is uh, is certainly the case, and that applies today in Israel as well. So you have since you have twenty four seven warfare nowadays. It's not that right. two armies would draw up on a you know on two different hills and say, "I challenge you." you know, right. Go. There's
2: no more yelling at a big giant across. There's the no more yelling <laughs> at a big giant.
1: It's, it goes on forever, and so that yes, the soldiers can. Do their service on Saturdays right. for Shabbat as well. But this they won, finally, the Jews won uh, enough to and go.
2: Wasn't it the abomination of desolation? Like, ultimately, one of the things that really, at least in our story, pushes this revolt is that um, Antiochus is going to set up and slaughter a pig to the god Zeus in the very house of yes. Israel's god, Yod He Vav He. Yes. Right? Like, this is not okay. We can't nope. have this anymore. And, um, and because and, uh, of that, the temple yeah.
1: was polluted, or people frequently say unclean, but the better word is tainted.
0: Mm-hmm. It
1: was tainted. Um, and it was tainted by all these practices. It was tainted by the idols. And if you read in the Book of Kings, you'll see over and over again that one king or another decided to become a vassal of the Arameans or whatever, Assyrians, Babylonians, and they right. would do the things that would please their overlord and put idols in the temple. And so that was happening. So the temple was destroyed. Next door to the temple was called the Acra. Acra is like acrophobia, mm-hmm. means fear of heights. Acra means high, the high the high fortress that overlooked that, which had been built to control the temple precinct. Right. But in any case, Judah Maccabee conquered Jerusalem, and they cleansed the temple in 167 BCE. And we have enough outside sources that allow us to date that very, very specifically.
2: Including some coinage.
1: Yes. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that uh, is quite interesting is that the book of Daniel has two parts. It has a first part, which is basically about Daniel Mm -hmm. and about a person who lived in Babylon right after the uh, destruction of Jerusalem and and the exile to Babylon. But it has a second part where it goes this long apocalyptic vision. And everybody knows because of the events that are described in right. there, that it is a description of the, this, yes. the conquest of the Middle East by Alexander up until just before the conquest of the temple mm-hmm. by Judah. And how do we know that? And the answer is because it doesn't mention it. Right. So we know exactly when that part of the book was written right. because it does depict these things. If you look at an Orthodox or a liberal Jewish commentary on the second half of daniel everybody knows that that's what it's talking about right. orthodox say it's prophecy by daniel mm-hmm. liberals read back into it and say no it's just a historical uh, a way of discussing it without discussing it for real it's right. a wink wink nod nod this is what we're talking about but in, same any case, in
2: christianity by the way <laughs> yeah. like we, we deal with the book of daniel in the same way yeah right? people who want to predate it um, to that, you know, much for, much more prior to that period, they're going to predate that and say, hey, this was Daniel, you know, had this vision and it was all this one guy Daniel in Babylon and here's how it handed down to us. Most people would suggest, uh, most scholars at least, and more, I guess, progressive Christians might say, no, we, we see a lot of evidence within the text that this is written down um, contemporary to these events because then after that point where we seem to um, miss... We seem to come to the point where the events have been fulfilled thus far. Then there's some prophecies that aren't accurate and that didn't quite happen exactly that way. And so we see where there's a good some good guesswork going yep.
1: on. So in 167 BCE, that's when Hanukkah first happened. And it was celebrated for eight days. And there's a couple stories about why. Uh, why eight days? And the basic story that Jews learned growing up is that there was a miracle when they needed to to light the menorah again the lampstand in the temple there was only a little bit of kosher oil that is there was a little sealed juglet of oil with the high priest's seal on it and it was only enough to light the menorah for one day but miraculously it lasted for eight And that's why we celebrate Hanukkah for eight days. A menorah, a Hanukkah, this candelabrum, has nine places to light because the eight are for the eight days. And one extra is called the shamash, Mm -hmm. which is the worker candle, which you use to light the other eight. Anyway, um, the symbol of the oil and the eight days and stuff. This is a, a, a a major issue of why the heck? Does it have to last eight days? <laughs> and so we have a couple things we want to tell you about. The first thing is, the, this is from 2nd Book of Maccabees, chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. It says, This day of the purification of the temple fell on the very day on which the temple had been profaned by the Greeks, the 25th of that month of Kislev. They kept eight festival days with rejoicing in the manner of the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths or what we Sukkot. call today Sukkot, yes, remembering how not long before at the time of the Feast of Sukkot, they had been living in the mountains in caverns like wild beasts. So carrying branches, leafy boughs, and palms, they offered hymns to God who had brought the cleansing of God's own holy place to happy outcome, and they decreed by public edict Ratified by a vote, which is kind of fun, that the whole Jewish nation should celebrate those same days. Some good
2: democracy, every sort of pushed in right there. I wonder
1: where democracy first came from. <laughs> that might be Athens. <laughs> that would be a Greek thing. So they were in a, they were influenced by that. In any case, I
2: think it was any home with more than one child. <laughs> at some point there was a vote taken. Yes,
1: and the and the kid wins. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so. uh one of the things that's interesting about that particular thing is that Hanukkah is eight days because Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles booths, is also eight days. It's the only eight-day festival mm-hmm. in Judaism. Uh, it turns out that when Solomon... Uh,
2: Dedicated, dedicated right.
1: and uh, set up his temple to get running. His Hanukkah Tabbaiit, which is called the Hanukkah, the dedication of the temple. The word Hanukkah means mm-hmm, dedication, mm-hmm. and Bait is a house. Hanukkah Habait means dedication of the mm-hmm. temple, and Hanukkah Hamizbeach, Mizbeach is an altar, is the dedication of the altar.
2: Well, and um, literally in the Hebrew it means dedication of the house, right? Which is the primarily, I would say, one of the preferred terms. Temple is a Greek word that's used later on. It's not (laughs) right where the ancient Israelites weren't calling it a temple; they were calling God's house.
1: That's right. We don't have an extra. We don't have a special word for temple. Mm-hmm. We just right. say house. And depending on whose house it is, mine, which is small, <laughs> God's, which is much bigger. <laughs> right. right. Then it it, it could be Hanukkah. And when you invite people to put open mezuzah, mm-hmm. mezuzah, which you put on your door, which signifies it's a Jewish house, um, you call it a Hanukkah. The same word, which right. is the dedication of mean? my house. Sure. With a mezuzah. Um, but in Second Chronicles 7, 4 through 10, we find that uh, uh, Solomon had a, eight-day dedication of his temple, and the last day, the eighth day of that dedication was the first day of Tabernacles, the Mm -hmm. first day of Sukkot, Mm -hmm. and that went on for another eight days, so it was a total of 15 days.
2: The man liked to party.
1: He did, he did, and he (laughs) sent everybody home with lots of presents, and... um, Uh, the 15 is a, is a, is a very special number in Judaism because if you use Hebrew letters to represent it, then the letter for 10 is a Yud and the letter for five is a Hey, that's why we don't usually use those numbers because it's God's name. So Mm -hmm. we use a, a couple other letters, nine and a six for 15. But because it's god 's name, fifteen has a special symbol, mm-hmm. so he didn't do us, and sixteen would be the same sure. because it's yudvav Vav, like a yo like a Yohanan mm-hmm. Jonathan, yo, all that stuff is is another name of God, so yo, ya. Uh, either one. And the 15 days uh, dedication that Solomon did was uh, a holy, holy, holy thing. Eight days of dedication and eight days of Sukkot and one day in the middle making 15. The question is, why did he have eight days of dedication? And for that, you have to turn to the end or chapters eight and nine of Leviticus, where you have the dedication of the altar, mm-hmm. and it's called Chanukat Mizbeach, the dedication of the altar, and it happens for seven days, and then on the eighth day they had the culmination of it. Mm-hmm. So basically, it takes eight days, according to Leviticus, to consecrate priests, to consecrate an altar, dedicate these things, and so the dedication period is eight days.
2: Which works well, because the Feast of Sukkot, or Tabernacles, or Booth, is this eighth-day celebration, and it remembers when, you know, God provided for his people by dwelling with them in the desert as they were wandering, and he had a very nice mishkan a nice tent at that time because the israelites didn't live in tents so he has a tent just like us and and then you know it's just a bit nicer and then once the israelites become people settled into a land he gets a, a much nicer house than the rest of them but that festival of sukkot that um that is conflated or or being celebrated at the same time when Solomon is dedicating the house of God also becomes during Solomon's day, specifically in his prayer in Kings, a time to say, and God, please send rain. So though God is sending this um, information, you know, he gives us this dedication information of how we keep the festival of Sukkot or tabernacles in the Torah, it's not actually said at that point why we wave palm branches, why these things are happening, or wh- or that it should be associated with rain at all, but when Solomon dedicates the temple, the house of God, he's like, okay, a big dark cloud fills this space, the glory of the Lord is here, dark clouds are good things in the land of Israel, they fill with rain, and Solomon prays this prayer and says, and when you look upon us, your people, when we have sinned, when we have turned away, when we turn back again, please then Send rain, and for those people who have lived in the land of Israel, you know that without rain, you die. the The line is very narrow. If it, 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 that desert will creep right on up to the Judean mountains very quickly um, if there's no rain and if there's no rain it doesn't just mean that you're thirsty it means that your crops are thirsty and if your crops are thirsty that means you don't get to eat you don't get to have milk you don't get to have wool or clothing which means you also can't really uh, take care of your home if you have a tent still which a lot of people still did then they don't have anything to to live in they're freezing they're homeless they are hungry we need rain.
1: As a matter so, of fact, Jerusalem is right at the edge of the rain line. It's on the watershed. So it's Ridge kind of Road, like yeah. a, um, it's kind of like a thermometer. It mm-hmm. tells you how moral you are. Mm-hmm. Because if you're doing well, God should send rain. If you're not doing well, God will withhold the rain. Right. That seems to be the biblical thing. And so if it doesn't rain, then the desert encroaches from the east. And if it rains enough, then the forest and the greenery encroach from the to west. You can
2: see the Negev flow with water, right? That's you right. See, you see these. And the prophets will use this language all the time. I mean, this is exactly the story of Elijah and all of the things and the, the drought that goes on for three years. I think... I think when we start to see then the waving of the palm branches, which is part of the Feast of Sukkot, coming also then into the festival of dedication of the temple with Solomon, that sounds a lot like rain on a roof. And you can start to hear that sound of rain. You know, you can start to hear the the deep prayer for rain, which then by the time we get into the second temple period, um, is very much part of that prayer, right? The festival of Sukkot is in the fall, just before the early rain should begin again. And this is a deep prayer to say, God, you know, if you don't send this, 70% of the promised land that you've given us is desert already we'll be looking at an 80 to 90 percent ratio that's not quite workable at this point and and we really need you to do these things so by the time the maccabees get in and they start to restore and and take care of and cleanse the temple they also recognize that they had missed this very important festival that remembers god's provision for them in the desert in the wilderness that god is their covering but also Is there a time to say, please send rain? That's right. And to bring their obedience back into sort of to come back to God and say, please look upon us and send rain with favor. I can imagine if I were in Israel in a December time period, somewhere around the time that we can set the feast of Hanukkah, right? We are this feast of dedication. If there hadn't been good rain yet, I'd I'd be very thankful that the Maccabeans knew enough to go back and grab that holiday and start bringing in all their palm branches again and waving them again because we missed it for Sukkot that year and we need it. We desperately need it.
1: So going on from this is not only a time of thinking about rain, at least it was in that conceivably Mm -hmm. in that first one, but um, it's also a time of light because it's a time of darkness. The year is a it's, this is the dark time of the year in the Northern Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. And so it became a time of lighting lights. And part of the concept of why is Hanukkah at this time of year is because it may be a reaction to the encroaching solstice as well. And, um, and so uh, Danielle and I were talking about the fact that if you, we're supposed to put a menorah in our window, Mm -hmm. If we have a window that goes, looks out so people can, we can publicize the miracle of the oil, as it were, or the miracle of the, uh, we'll talk more about what the real miracle might've been, but. um,
2: Unless it's a time of oppression and you can't safely put the menorah in your window. That's right.
1: But if you walk in a mixed neighborhood of Jews and Christians, you'll see that there are. Some windows that have a menorah in them of nine candles, that mm-hmm. is eight for the eight days and one to light them, and there are some windows that have five mm-hmm. and I always knew that the the, candle, the windows with five candles were Christian, and the windows with nine <laughs> candles were jews and uh and then I found out today when we were planning <laughs> this talk why that is so
2: So um, in the 16th century, in uh, Lutheran practice, people started to, um, maybe it was in response to, oh, aren't those beautiful menorahs? We'd like some too, who knows, but they started to also light candles for marking the uh, period of, Um, anticipation for the celebrated time when we celebrate the birth of Jesus. And so there are five candles, four, one for each week prior to the coming of December 25th, and the fifth candle then um, for the Christ candle, for the one that um, you would memorize. And I, I don't know how common that practice is in all parts of Christianity. It's really more Lutheran, um, maybe also now Anglican or Episcopalian. But it's starting, I think, particularly in current practice of Christianity with uh, Christmas becoming as commercialized as it is. It's one of the ways where families might try to um, help their children uh, look towards the purpose of the season for seeing this time as, as lighting, a light in a dark place, in a dark season, that the light has come into our world. Um, that That's something that that starts to symbolize that for us, yeah. It tends to come on a wreath, so I've actually never seen them in a window, but, um, but I have seen them around a wreath, or, or growing up, I grew up in a Lutheran church, so I saw them light it every Sunday prior to the Christmas time.
1: And uh, Danielle was also telling me about Luke chapter 2. Yes. Well, about where Jesus actually observed Hanukkah.
2: Well, actually, the the passage where Jesus is observing Hanukkah is in John chapter 10. John. And in John 10, we have this really wonderful, um, just bit of information. And just as an armchair historian, this stuff is my favorite when I find these little lines here. But we are in uh, John chapter 10, beginning in verse 22. And it says, then came the feast of dedication, which is Hanukkah at Jerusalem. And it was winter. And Jesus was in the temple area, the area of the house of God, walking in Solomon's Colonnade, which was just a portion of the temple, of Herod's temple that um, was sort of set apart. And the Jews gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, please tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you're not believing the miracles I do in my father's name. Speak for me. And they have a little bit of a conversation about that. But we have this quick little note that says, hey, He was there for the Feast of Dedication, and they note that time period in the Gospel of John. And what that tells us is that uh, at least John knows that his audience knows the festival. Though it is not given in Torah as part of the um, cyclical festival that, uh, or the feast season that Israelites should be keeping, by the time of the uh, first century in Judea, we have people keeping the Feast of Dedication. Jesus shows up for it.
1: So I asked Danielle, what's the message of Christmas? By the way, Jesus did not celebrate Christmas. No, he did not. <laughs> yes, he did, but he celebrated his birthday. <laughs> if uh, they I, even really I did I don't know that. if they did that back then. But what is the message of Christmas? <laughs>
2: Um, So one of the passages, we only have in our four Gospels, only two Gospels actually talk about the birth of Jesus. Um, For as much attention as it gets in our current uh, North American society, we only have two Gospel accounts of it, not all four. And one of the things that it says in Matthew is that an angel shows up and says this to Joseph. Um, all this took place, so he says, you know, that you are to give him the name Jesus. He will for- save the people from his sins. And then in Matthew chapter 1, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And John, although he, John, the gospel of John does not talk about the birth of Jesus, it does start to use some very genesis language for uh, the beginning of the entrance to the gospel of john and it says it this way in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and he was with god in the beginning through him all things were made without him nothing has been made that has been made and it continues on and it talks about the word in verse 14 the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and this is that concept again that God is with us that um, this is not by the way a Christian concept it is not original to the gospels this is an ancient Israelite ancient Jewish concept that God deeply wants to be and dwell with his people this is what we see in the garden when it says he's walking in the cool of the evening though Adam and Eve have um, discovered that they are naked and ashamed Um, that God has a practice of dwelling and walking with his people and then we have hints of that continuing um, even unto the reason why he covenants with Abraham, and the reason why he then makes sure that there is a teva, a papyrus basket that um, holds Moses so that the people can be rescued again, because God wants to have them come out of Egypt that they may worship him, that he might be with them. And we have that dwelling picture at Sinai and marriage covenant. We have it with the tabernacle or the Mishkan in Sinai as people are wandering in the wilderness. God is dwelling. In them. It says, Batoch, Nahonin. There, he's going to dwell in. In, in the midst of Israel. And then we have that picture again, even with Solomon's dedication of the house. So, of course, for me, it is no surprise reading the text as a whole to see that, um, for me as a Christian, I see a lot of continuity in God wanting to be with us. So, for me, the Christmas season is remembering that God took on human flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us.
1: However, if you get a Christmas card, it says, peace on earth, good will to men, and doesn't say god is with us or anything like that so and yeah and right. if you turn on the television it just says shop 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 which i think is another message of christmas but right. sorry about that but no
2: i know <laughs> And, and I think Christians wrestle with this. I know a lot of Christians that refuse to partake in any of the, the commercial trappings of Christmas. They refuse to have a Christmas tree. They refuse to have Christmas lights. They refuse to have anything with Santa. And and I have a, a good friend that for many years, um, you know, he said, well, I'm not gonna do this stuff with my kids. I don't want them participating in this pagan nonsense. We will remember the birth of Jesus, but we're going to remember it around the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot time because that's more likely the time and you can get a whole big discussion. About that, or we will remember it at the darker time of year. And so he actually said, "Well, I looked through the text, and I see one of the most frequent symbols or images for God is God is my rock." He's like, "I really like that image, so I'm going to move a rock into my house, and I'm going to stick the menorah, the Hanukkah, on top of that, and that's going to be it." So I asked him, I said, "So your kids now—they're all grown up. They all have their own children. What do they do?" He said, "They all have a, a tree. Christmas tree." <laughs> <laughs> and and so I see that you know there's. I don't know that there's a benefit. I think everyone has to make that decision themselves. You can rail against the commercialization or you can try to do what I think we have. Um, for for me, my practice is I see God reaching into uh, real space and real time and redeeming the symbols of our day and finding ways to use everything to point everything back to God's self. And so I, that's what I do. I try to find everything and find in everything a way to see God's presence, God still being Emmanuel, dwelling
1: with us. By the way, we're sitting in Danielle's house, and (laughs) I see I come over here every so often. This is the first time I've been here with the candy canes and and the wreaths. And (laughs) And the wreaths, yeah. It's all set up. Uh, I have to say that, honestly, I find the whole concept of a Christmas tree both familiar and macabre. And the reason I find it to be macabre, I'll just get that out of the way, is that Jesus was crucified on a tree trunk. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so putting a tree in your house on his birthday
0: (laughs) right right
1: is a symbol of what he's going to end up on and i've heard christians talk about Mm -hmm. that is is difficult for me to look at kindly right but i have to say that christmas trees are somewhat familiar to me because i grew up in an american house back in the 1950s and my family my entire jewish relatives uh Everybody had Christmas trees, and people would come over to our house. My father was like uh, the—he was not the oldest of the seven kids, but he was the one that everybody came over to. And so we celebrated Christmas all the time until I was in youth group Hmm. later on in high school, and I had a choice of being home for Christmas or going to a youth group convention in Omaha. (laughs) (laughs) And— And my mom said, "You're not going to be home for Christmas." And mm-hmm. I said, "Mom, you know I'm Jewish. I think this is the last one." But mm-hmm. I had Christmas trees, and mm-hmm. I had little stocking on the. Right. Didn't have a mantle, whatever. Mm-hmm. Figure what we put it, and there were things in there. And my father would always put a lump of coal in. I would get more for Christmas than I would for Hanukkah. For Hanukkah, I would get a quarter. Mm. On each day. Right. And for Christmas, you know, I would get all the things that people brought over. And since I was lucky because of the Christmas party for the Jewish family was at my house, I got more than anybody else, my brother and I. So I remember the smell of Christmas trees, and it's very familiar. It's a
2: family. And it wasn't because anyone was celebrating the birth of Christ, it was simply an American holiday, a bit more like Thanksgiving.
1: Yeah, my family worked all the time. So Mm -hmm. my, my father and his brothers. And his wife, his uh, sister's husbands, all worked. And they only took off, really, on American holidays. Mm -hmm. And so this is when they all took off. They couldn't work. It was, you know, blue laws. You couldn't do that back then. As a matter of fact, I have to tell you that Christmas on Shabbat, on a Saturday, is my favorite Shabbat. Mm -hmm. Because the whole place, shut, the whole country shuts down, more or less. And it feels like you're in Israel. Right. on on Yom Kippur or something when right. everything shuts down. Shabbat is shut down. It's it's really a Shabbat. It's, finally it's really a, a nice Sabbath. quiet night,
2: yeah. which is something you experience when you are, say, in Jerusalem on a Shabbat, but yeah. not something that's easily experienced here in North America anymore.
1: Or even in downtown Tel Aviv. <laughs> no,
2: definitely not in downtown Tel Aviv. Well, and it's interesting, too, having been in Israel around the time of Hanukkah, Right. I mean, I see Sufganiyot, jelly donuts coming out and sort of the you know, constancy of trying to bring in the light and the oil and things. But it's not the same deal in Israel that it is here in North America.
1: No, only here does it go bananas.
2: And I think it goes bananas in response. And bananas is a loose term. I don't actually (laughs) believe that it's going bananas. But it's in response to the commercialization of Christmas as well. right? Everyone's trying to find a way to uh, maintain their own religious identity in the face of the bombardment of um, the constancy of everything else that starts showing up even long before Halloween. And I know this is a very, um, I, I, I do some practice in my life to try to be, um, to try to develop empathy. And so for my Jewish friends, I always think, wow, it must be really hard Christmas time if I were if I had my kids with me all the time. I'm having to explain this all the time. I'm having to constantly say Constant music everywhere candy canes everywhere everywhere you go,
0: right?
2: 24/7. And the only thing that I can liken it to is that um my youngest daughter really her friends are into the movie Frozen. Now, I am not a big fan of princesses. Uh, In our house, we focus a little bit more on some feminist values, and so princesses are not my big thrill, and we've had like a no princess rule in my house. But all of her friends love this song. She's let it go. She's never seen the movie. She's not old enough, but she's seen enough of the clips, and she's only two and a half, and it's ubiquitous. Every store I go into, whether it's a grocery store, they all have some Frozen character of on. Anna and Elsa and the Olaf snowman. And again, she has never seen this movie, but I, at least 10 times a day she's telling me, okay, mommy, you be Anna, I'll be Elsa. No, I'll be Anna, you be Elsa. And then we have to act out something that has no framework at all because we're not watching the movie. And I have thought to myself, this must be how all of my Jewish friends feel whenever they try to take their kids out of the house during Christmas time. I can't take her into any store without being confronted with a conversation about princesses.
1: Actually, this is the one time of year which goes on for about a month, that I feel the least comfortable here. Sure, and because you you just can't get away from it. Um,
2: Even if they have that tiny little Hanukkah display, it's like on an end cap of an aisle, I and know. there's a little bit of gelch. And the way up back, there. <laughs> there's like one dreidel and then a few extra menorah candles, and that's that.
1: And um, anyway, we should turn to the message of Hanukkah because I yes. want to say that, and then Please. we'll talk a little bit, about a couple other things. The message of Hanukkah. Actually, is about the, the miracle of the oil. And the miracle of the oil is not to me that there was a little bit amount of oil, actual mm-hmm. oil, that lasted for eight days when it should have lasted for one, which is fine. But the miracle to me is that that little oil actually, it was said that they only found a small jug of oil that was with the seal of the high priest
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that they knew was still pure and it lasted. And the oil was the number of Jews who were still committed to being Mm -hmm. Jewish Mm -hmm. in the face of all this intense Westernization Greek culture. The fact that we survived and we're still here and are still committed to being Jews Mm -hmm. is to me the miracle of Hanukkah. Mm -hmm. So that when I look at it, I don't see the miracle and I could care less about the presence like I say, I grew up only getting a quarter anyway. Right. Um, of course, back then, a quarter was a lot of money. But... <laughs> you could
2: buy at least two candy canes. <laughs> <laughs> you could.
1: That's how much money I used to of gasoline I used to put into the family car after I used it for a date, Wow, 25 cents. <laughs> <That's hilarious. laughs> you couldn't even get a <laughs> eyedropper in there. But, um, but the fact that we're still here,
2: right. that to
1: me is the biggest miracle of Hanukkah. Amen. And the, the fun thing about it is, That the word Hanukkah not only means dedication, but Chinuch, which is the same concept, is education. Mm. And so the education of our children and of ourselves is the concept of Hanukkah every day. Yes. That is, every time we learn Mm -hmm. anything, Mm -hmm. that's Hanukkah. Mm -hmm. When we learn about ourselves and our Jewish tradition and our better moral values, that's Hanukkah to me. And so... um, That is the message of Hanukkah. I, there, there are two things we'd like to talk about before we um, end. One is, what do you feel about Xmas as a word? Because like, people say Merry Christmas and Xmas, and Jews have a tendency to think that X stands for taking the Christ out of Christ's Mass, which nobody <laughs> calls it anymore. They call Christmas, as right. you can right. barely hear Christ or Mass in it. But actually, the X is not a Jewish invention to take Christ out it's Mm -hmm. a Christian invention a shorthand for the cross right right. so a Christian is a is somebody who believes in the person who was crucified on a cross and so Mm x-i-a-n as a Christian is not an insult unless you think it's an onslaught
2: right right
1: but the other thing is what do you say to people at this time of year people ask me that do I answer do I say Merry Christmas to people and I say yeah I do If I know that they're Christian.
0: Right, right.
1: So if I don't know that they're Christian, they could be anything else. Mm
0: -hmm, And mm -hmm. I don't
1: say Merry Christmas, Mm -hmm. then I'll just say Happy Holidays. But if somebody says Merry Christmas to me, Mm -hmm. there was a time that I was very snotty about it, and I would say something else or Happy Hanukkah or whatever. But Happy Hanukkah is not an equivalent concept. Right, So now I'm older, wiser, and less combative. (laughs) So, So if somebody says Merry Christmas to me, I'll just say Merry Christmas back.
2: Right, right. And for many, it's just a courteous greeting that really probably has hardly any religious connotation. Um, not for all, but for many. I mean, in, in, here in Silicon Valley, I think we have uh, somewhat about 92 to 94% of the population has no affiliation or practice with any faith practice at all.
1: And they're likely to be Buddhist or Hindu or yeah. Muslim as anything else, right Jewish or Christian.
2: Right. So if here in Silicon Valley somebody says Merry Christmas to me, it, it's probably likened unto the uh, Madonna uh, time when she was wearing a cross and a whole bunch of other people started wearing a cross. Really didn't have a lot to do with any religious statement. I've actually been
1: surprised how many people wear crosses with no concept of it being Christian.
2: No. Right. Um,
1: A lot of them think of it as an ankh, which is, you know, an Egyptian symbol for life. But that looks a little bit different.
2: It does look a little bit different. And it doesn't bother me at all if somebody says happy holidays, because happy holidays means happy holy days. And it's just another shortened version. And it's days that are being set apart. And so whoever it is that we're speaking to, we can say, hey, I'm, I'm... big enough to be able to wish you a happy holy day season, whatever that might be. And it might just be for many people a family time. Um, my God is so big that my God does not need me to insist that everybody else um, give the the proper, uh, whatever, religious greeting around the time of a Uh, date that we have sort of randomly set aside to remember a guesstimate birth date of Jesus um, that we remember the birth of Jesus is not problematic for me that it becomes a huge um, holiday frenzy is a little bit challenging and I wrestle back to like can I just we'll just do the commercial thing and not actually associate it all with my religion because it's not part of my religious practice uh, when I read through my Bible, I don't see anywhere in my Bible um, any instructions on celebrating the birth of Christ. So I see stuff on Passover, and I see stuff about um, now, of course, the Feast of Dedication and other things, uh, Feast of Sukkot, but I don't see anything in there. That we do it is fine, but I don't feel a need to defend it um, tooth and nail. And, and I think it actually... Um, It makes our faith and our expression and even the the thing that we are remembering as Christians around this time one-dimensional when we just start to Um, throw down bumper sticker slogans and try to defend those very quickly to one another. You know, put the Christ back in Christmas. And, you know, I'll say Merry Christmas to you. I don't feel in any way offended. If somebody even said Happy Hanukkah to me, I would be like, thank you. That's great.
1: Well, you know, (laughs) I, I, I do feel compassion for Christians who remember the days of the 50s and 60s. When you could pretty much assume that most people were Christian. Sure. And, and then you could walk around and say, Merry Christmas to each other, Happy Easter. Because um, when I went to Israel the first time, and I would just randomly see people on the street living, I was living in Jerusalem, uh, people were always saying Shabbat Shalom, Shabbat right, Shalom, right. or whatever happy holiday it was, Happy Passover, this, mm-hmm. Hag sameach And we would, and all of a sudden I realized what it felt. For a Christian
0: mm-hmm. to
1: under, to walk around just assuming that everybody was Jewish right. and getting that kind of an answer right. back, it's, so
2: it has a feeling of being home.
1: Yeah, it does, and so I, I do understand that. Uh, so Jews in America, if you don't live in an exceedingly Jewish neighborhood like I grew up in, mm-hmm. but don't live in anymore only get that experience when we walk into our synagogues. Mm-hmm. And everybody greets you there with mm-hmm. Shabbat, Shalom, Hag Sameach, Happy mm-hmm. New Year, whatever it is. And that's, that's a wonderful feeling. But the fact of the matter is, at least in Silicon Valley, but a lot of America now, mm-hmm. is more like a United Nations right. than it is a unified religious right. culture.
2: We're 30 to 40% foreign-born here in Silicon yeah. Valley.
1: But if you walk into the United Nations... Merry Christmas is not the norm, Mm -hmm. because there are so many people Mm -hmm. who are not Christian from Mm -hmm. other countries where the minority culture is not Christian. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm used to that. Right. And I understand that, and it doesn't bother me in any way, but I do understand that if you live in an area which is predominantly Christian, and you Mm -hmm. move to an area which is predominantly mixed up like this place, Mm -hmm. that it's very unsettling, and it's hard to deal with that we Jews are pretty used to it right. because we've never been the majority well
2: you'll get to teach the rest of us <laughs> <laughs>
1: maybe <laughs> but um, anyway yes so I would say tell all the Christians Merry Christmas
2: and I'll say Happy Hanukkah Hanukkah, <laughs> Hanukkah come light
1: the let's have a party we'll all dance the hoda gather
0: around the table we'll give you a treat Oh, <laughs>